Santa Aurelia LLC pays for this show. The views expressed by the hosts and guests on Inside Track are their own and may not reflect those of KVOI, but they should. Hello, Insiders, and a very pleasant good afternoon to you, wherever you may be. This is your host, Bruce Ash, and I'm still broadcasting live from the third level of my underground bunker located in Coronado, California, where the men are strong, the women are good-looking, and the parents of these kids are absolutely convinced their children are way above average, welcoming you to a special edition of Inside Track. Eb is on assignment today. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Before I get to our first guest, I want to remind all of you to please support our great sponsors, Tucson Iron and Metal, Their Junk, Just Might Be Your New Fence, Essential Pest Control, Eric Rudin's Varmint and weed chasing and and uh, uh, bug chasing uh, crew is up on everything at my house. Corazon cabinets, cabinets you will love at a price you can afford, and right flight. Also supporting Inside Track is the aforementioned Eb Wilkinson with Wilkinson Wealth Management. All of our sponsors are locally owned, family-run businesses you can depend upon. Eb and I do, so should you. We welcome your calls today on the Wilkinson Wealth Management Live Line at 790-2040. We do have a great show for you today. Dr. Raphael Medoff joins us from the David Winant Center for Holocaust Studies in Washington, D.C. And we'll discuss his new book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, which deals with the overt way that President Franklin Roosevelt ignored serious and life-ending catastrophe, both leading up to World War II and the actual Holocaust during the war itself. After speaking to Dr. Medoff, we're going to go local with nominee for Amphi School District Governing Board, Mona Gibson, and discuss her election and the goings-on with the start of school this month. Before we get to Dr. Medoff on his new book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, let's get to the news rundown. In a shocking report, the U.S. Census Bureau recently admitted it overcounted the populations of eight states and undercounted populations of six states in the 2020 census. All but one of the states overcounted is a blue state, and all but one of the undercounted states is red. Those costly errors will distort congressional representation and the Electoral College. It means that when the census when the Census Bureau reapportioned the House of Representatives, Florida was cheated out of two additional seats it should have received. Texas missed out on another seat. Minnesota and Rhode Island each kept representation they shouldn't have had. And Colorado was awarded a new member of the House it did not deserve. In a speech this week to his supporters, President Joe Biden said the following. The MAGA Republicans don't just threaten our personal rights and economic security. They, they are a threat to our very democracy. They refuse to accept the will of the people. They embrace, embrace political violence. They do not believe in democracy. It's not hyper, a hyperbole, he said. Now you need to vote literally to save democracy again. Look. I believe America is at a genuine inflection point, the president said. It occurs every six or seven generations in world history. One of the moments that changes everything. Americans are going to have to choose. You have to choose. We will, will we be a country that moves forward or backward, he said. Will we build a future or obsess on the past? Will we be a nation of hope, of unity, of optimism? Not a nation of anger, hatred, and division. Republican men and women, how much more bashing can we tolerate? Talk loud with your vote and do not fail to vote for every GOP candidate in the upcoming November election. This week, President Joe Biden announced a student loan bailout, which could cost up to $1 trillion, according to some estimates. Administration officials don't even know for sure how much it might cost. It is a bad idea, this loan bailout, for lots of reasons. First, it's a pre-election bribe hoping to get more votes in the midterm, which conveniently gets paid by taxpayers. It, it de-incentivizes, I will say that again, it de-incentivizes all people, 
not to pay their debts while saddling taxpayers, most of whom did pay off their kids' college debts and are faithfully paying off home and consumer debt and further incentivizes colleges to overburden students with debt to pay their ballooning costs to attend university, some with little to show for it other than a fun time after high school before going to grad school. Lastly, but I can cite many other excuses, many other reasons why the scheme is so bad, the underlying presence, the COVID emergency, is a false use of the law under national emergency members to cancel debt and will ultimately cause this executive order to be overturned. On our border, last week, news surfaced of the capture of three men at the Mexican border dressed in ghillie suits. These are the camouflage outfits designed to allow an individual to blend in to his environment. They're often used by snipers or individuals in the U.S. military conducting long-term clandestine operations uh, where they're observing targets. The press reacted with confusion. That's strange. No one seemed to understand why illegals would go to so much trouble to avoid detection at a time when the Border Patrol has been turned into Uber for aliens and getting caught means a hot shower, a plane ticket, so you can continue your travel in style and a free cell phone. As usual, the press missed the entire point. Friends, we're at war, not necessarily with illegal entrants, but with the cartels who are so smart and so powerful, they actually sent phone texts to all of the Mexican and U.S. citizens living in Tijuana to stay off the streets last week so they could carry out their own criminal operations at that border city without affecting what they called innocent bystanders in the same way that America would drop leaflets warning of imminent attack in the Second World War. This is not about the humanity of the cartel leaders. It shows the strength and the absolute chokehold they have on not only on the Mexican government, but our own government due to the refusal of Democrats to see the obvious which is we have lost control of our southern border and what started as an election strategy for the Democrats to fix elections has now turned into one of the most serious national security threats for our country in decades. Mr. Producer, let's go to our first break and hear from our great sponsors. You're listening to Inside Track. We'll be right back with Dr. Raphael Medoff chatting with him about his new book, the Jews should keep quiet. We'll return in a jiffy. Customers come first at Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. What other kind of customers do you have? So our Tucson? biggest customers are actually like ranchers and yeah. people from outside of the Tucson area. They're buying a lot of square tubing. They're buying a lot of stuff for their ranch to close off fences. We'll sell anything from 10 feet to 10,000 feet to somebody that comes in because we have new steel and surplus steel from steel mills. The reason we're able to get such good pricing on some of this stuff is A, we sell scrap to the mill. So uh, we have a relationship there and then we can buy material, what they're making, bringing it back. And so we save on freight and we have relationships for years with them. So I think that's really our niche market. We'll sell whatever you need. Tucson Iron and Metal Surplus. Call 209-1579. Stop by the yard, 701 East 36th Street. Open Monday through Saturday. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? <sighs> no, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. Instead of an activity where every kid gets a trophy, those who graduate from Wright Flight get to fly a plane. But only if they get good grades, are well-behaved, and pass a written test. I'm Robin Stoddard, an ex-fighter pilot. I founded Wright Flight because I knew it could help kids reach new heights in their schools, homes, and communities. Endorsed by educators at every level, nonprofit Wright Flight has changed thousands of lives since 1986. Learn more at rightflight.org. This is Eb Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management. 
Are you letting rising inflation interfere with your ammo budget? Don't do that. Let us show you how to buy the same goods and services 20 years from now as you can today. We manage money for gun owners and we can guide you to retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me, Eb Wilkinson, at 777-1911 or WilkinsonWealthMGMT.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. Our special guest for the next several minutes is Dr. Raphael Medoff. He is a founding member of the David S. Wyman Institute for Holocaust Studies located in Washington, D.C., which focuses on America's response to Nazism and the Holocaust. Tell us a little, uh, Dr. Medoff, about the uh, Wyman Center other than that real brief introduction. Well, the late Professor David S. Wyman was the author of the definitive study America's response to the Holocaust. His book, The Abandonment of the Jews, published in 1984, was a New York Times bestseller and uh, really reshaped um, conventional wisdom about President Franklin Roosevelt's response to Nazism and the Holocaust. And, and, and The Abandonment of the Jews remains the gold standard uh, in this field. Some years ago, uh, I and some of my colleagues decided to establish the Wyman Institute in order to carry on Professor Wyman's uh, uh, groundbreaking research to, um, to publish new scholarship and to further explore the important question of how Americans responded to Nazism and the Holocaust. So I'll, I'll ask this question again toward the uh, latter part of the interview. How do people find out more about the Wyman Institute and, and how do they support you? Because the work that you're doing is very important. Our website is wymaninstitute.org. That's W-Y-M-A-N institute.org. And we are a uh, tax-deductible, charitable uh, educational institution. So Dr. Medoff has written more than 20 books on Jewish history and contributed to many references, uh, including the Encyclopedia Judaica. He's taught at Ohio State University and State University of New York at Purchase and elsewhere. Um, His background on the topic is fascinating. How did you come to uh, this uh, scholarly area to focus on? Well, my field is American Jewish history, but what particularly interests me about contemporary American Jewish history is what we might call Jewish foreign policy. How American Jews um, have have responded to different types of uh, concerns and controversies overseas, uh, especially uh, the, the Nazi period and also the question of American Zionism. So most of my books have dealt with either one of these, those two subjects, how American Jews have responded to the Holocaust or um, American Jewish support for creating a, a Jewish state um, in the land of Israel. Now, Professor Wyman's work focuses, as you see from its title, on the abandonment of the Jews and, and most of the history of how America responded to the Nazi genocide was indeed a story of abandonment. But there's also another side to that history, and that is those Americans, the minority of Americans who did speak out, who did try to protest in some way or try to push the Roosevelt administration to do something to help the Jews. And a good deal of my research has focused specifically on that area, um, the few Americans who did who did speak out. Mm. Dr. Madoff's recent book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, President Franklin Roosevelt's Controversial Relationship with America's Foremost Leader, Uh, in the Jewish community of the 30s and 40s. This book was actually published in 2019 by Jewish publication Society of America, University of Nebraska Press. Dr. Madoff, you have written 16 books, many of them related to the Holocaust. Um, As I think I told you as we were uh, emailing back and forth, I have great interest in the Shoah. My family lost over a dozen members of our family in the death camps and and work camps. Does your family have a history that you know, surrounds the Holocaust also? Uh, No. My interest in the subject comes strictly from the point of uh, of view of a a scholar who is interested in exploring aspects of recent Jewish history that have not been fully addressed by other historians. Hmm. So tell us a little something about Rabbi Stephen Weiss. Well, 
Rabbi Wise was in many ways uh, unlike contemporary American Jewish leaders. For one thing, um, he was simultaneously the head of multiple organizations, the American Jewish Congress, the American Zionist Movement, the World Jewish Congress, a rabbinical training seminary. Um, he also had a synagogue. So he was a man um, with a lot of responsibilities. I think he was also, wasn't he also founder of the NAACP? He's a friend of, of, of Albert Einstein. He was a supporter of Al Smith when he ran for president as well as FDR. He was a member of the board of directors of the NAACP and also of the American Civil Liberties Union. Wise was a very, very busy uh, Jewish leader and, uh, and civic leader as well. Now, one of the important questions that I ask in my book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, is whether Rabbi Wise simply spread himself too thin, whether he had taken too much upon himself and therefore therefore was unable to adequately, adequately represent the interests of the Jewish community in his dealings with President Roosevelt um, during the Nazi years. Hmm. The title of the book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, is a close paraphrase of something that President Roosevelt repeatedly said to Rabbi Wise in private over the years. FDR pressured Wise to keep the Jewish community quiet. Like any president, FDR didn't want people criticizing him, and he certainly did not want his one of his most loyal constituencies, American Jewish voters, publicly taking issue with his refusal to admit more Jewish refugees or take any other steps to help the Jews in Europe. Um, and Wise was personally loyal to Roosevelt, to the Democratic Party, to the New Deal, and therefore he had difficulty um, acknowledging at the time, acknowledging that um, Roosevelt was not doing what could be done to help uh, save Jews from the Holocaust. You write that FDR manipulated Rabbi Weiss. Um, I, I, I hope you can talk about that. And, you know, life for Jews in the 30s uh, was much different than today, being that there still was a bias against Jews and, and worry that they were, uh, you know, invading certain, uh, uh, you know, institutions uh, that had been left to others, you know, since the founding of the country. Didn't, didn't, Roosevelt really take advantage of the, I don't want to call it inferior, inferiority, but but sort of a, a complex sort of a relationship that Jews had in American society at that time? Like many skilled politicians, FDR was very good at manipulating people, Rabbi Wise included. So Roosevelt um, knew that Wise was, for example, very susceptible to flattery. And he agreed to, the FDR agreed to occasional meetings with Wise uh, in the White House. Not very often. And there are no photographs uh, that were ever taken of Wise meeting with FDR. Um, but having this kind of very limited access gave Rabbi Wise a feeling that he was, um, that he was valued and respected by, you know, by the chief executive. So, unfortunately... That, that seems to have compromised Wise's ability to speak out um, for Jewish concerns. It's certainly true that the 1930s and 1940s were a period of, of significant anti-Semitism in the United States. Historians estimate that there were more than 100 anti-Semitic organizations active in the 1930s. Um, but many Americans were not anti-Semitic, and the standards of American society rejected anti-Semitism and other forms of bigotry. Um, so while American Jewish leaders were understandably concerned about the levels of anti-Semitism, um, when, when Jewish dissident groups, like the Political Action Committee, known as the Bergson Group, undertook public protests and placed ads in the newspapers, um, Jewish leaders like Wise could see that those kinds of protests were not triggering waves of anti-Semitism or pogroms. Some Jewish leaders had warned the Bergson group that their vociferous political protests would, would result in pogroms in the United States. I understand why some Jewish leaders had those fears, but once they saw that the fears were unjustified, then um, it really was the obligation of Rabbi Wise and other Jewish leaders um, to speak out more strongly um, since it was clear that their concerns about anti-Semitism were exaggerated. They really didn't have faith in American society, one might say. Um, 
Rabbi Wise and other Jewish leaders. Well, let's speak about the whole generation. Um, during that period, uh, most American Jews were either immigrants or children of immigrants, and many were not fully secure. They did not feel fully secure in their place in American society. It was interesting that the Berkson Group um, took a different approach, but it, but the Berkson Group's leaders um, actually all came from Palestine or Europe during the 1940s. They weren't even American citizens, hmm. leaders of the group. So they didn't share the same fears about how the American public uh, might respond. For example, when they organized 400 uh, rabbis to march to the White House just before Yom Kippur in 1943 to plead with Roosevelt to do something to rescue Jews from Hitler. Um, you write that FDR went out of his way to suppress immigration far below the limit set by U.S. law and refused to admit Jewish refugees to the Virgin Islands even after local government officials there offered to open the doors. Why? Sometimes in contemporary discussions about FDR and the Holocaust, we hear the argument that it was nothing he could have done to let more Jews into America because it was the Great Depression. There was significant public opposition to more immigration. Congress was overwhelmingly against uh, allowing in more immigration. But important to realize that a significant number of Jewish refugees could have been admitted to America in the 30s and 40s without making any changes to America's uh, immigration laws, without fighting with Congress or without sparking a, a public controversy. All FDR had to do was to quietly say to the State Department, which in those days was in charge of it, administering uh, the immigration laws, allow the existing quotas to be filled. When I refer to quotas, I'm referring to the immigration system during those years, which was based on a numerical limit for each country around the world. So for example, the maximum number of people who were allowed to come from Germany to America um, was about 27,000. And that meant German citizens, although for that period, the vast majority were Jews. So about 27,000 could have come. However, in 11 of FDR's 12 years in office, that quota from Germany was not filled. In fact, in the majority of those years, it was less than 25% filled. Now, unused immigration slots, um, visas, were not, if they were not used, they didn't roll over until the next year. They were simply discarded. If you add up the total number of unused visa uh, quota places, from Germany and then later from German-occupied countries in Europe, we find that more than 190,000 quota places were not used. So that means more than 190,000 Jewish refugees could have been admitted to the United States without changing one letter of the existing quota system. So the problem, the first problem that Jewish refugees face in trying to escape to America was not the quota system. It wasn't Congress. It wasn't public opinion. It wasn't the Great Depression. It was the fact that the Roosevelt administration deliberately added all kinds of extraneous uh, requirements and extra obligations to make it hard for Jewish refugees to qualify. In other words, what FDR and his State Department were doing was deliberately suppressing the number of Jewish refugees admitted far below what the law allowed. And this is even in the midst of liberty ships that were um, delivering goods to our uh, allies in the UK, they would come back to America empty, uh, and Roosevelt refused to let uh, refugees be on those ships and come to the United States, right? That's another argument we sometimes hear from defenders of FDR's Holocaust record. They say, well, there were no ships available to bring refugees to America. After all, it was in the middle of a war, if we're talking about the 1940s. Well, the reality is that um, these ships, American ships, known as Liberty ships, which were carrying uh, soldiers and weapons to to our allies in Europe um, and then to American troops in Europe later in the war, um, would unload their cargo and then would return to the United States empty. In fact, they had to be loaded with what's called ballast um, to weigh down the ships so they wouldn't capsize. Uh, much of the ballast came from rubble from bombed out English cities. Um, instead of rubble, they could have they could have filled those ships with Jewish refugees, and and they and, and their weight would have prevented the ships from capsizing. So the claim that there was no transportation available 
is another myth um, that we often hear. So I mentioned I mentioned the the myth that it was impossible to um, to bring more Jews under the quota laws. Uh, and now we've talked about we've spoken of the second myth uh, that there were no transportation available. And perhaps the most famous myth of all is the idea that um, it was impossible for the United States uh, Air Force to bomb uh, the railways leading to Auschwitz uh, at the time. In 1944, Jewish organizations repeatedly pleaded with the Roosevelt administration, also with the British and the Soviets, um, to drop a few bombs on those railways and bridges leading to Auschwitz um, from Hungary because hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews were being deported in trains um, on those routes. And at the time, Jewish organizations which asked for such bombing were told it was impossible because it would require diverting um, American planes from battle zones for a non-military purpose. But as historians, chiefly Professor Wyman, discovered um, and eventually published, in fact, American planes were bombing in and around Auschwitz repeatedly during the summer and fall of 1944 because they were hitting German synthetic oil factories that were located in the uh, Auschwitz complex. And Auschwitz was a sprawling facility of many miles there was the gas chamber, crematorium, mass murder area. There were also slave labor areas with the oil factories. And um, Elie Wiesel's uh, famous book, Night, includes a story account by Wiesel, who was a teenage slave laborer in one of those oil factories. And he describes he and the other prisoners seeing the American planes flying overhead and dropping the bombs on the oil factories. And he recalls how, how they prayed that the bombs would also be dropped on the railways leading into the camp, on the gas chamber and the crematory themselves, but those bombs were never dropped. Um, Roosevelt and his administration, the State Department, uh, also um, talked, uh, thought about uh, Jewish resettlement, uh, were against a, a settlement in Palestine. They wanted to spread the Jews thinly out through the world. Um, look, I, I don't like to give opinion. Uh, you're the one who wrote the book, but it, it sure seems to me Roosevelt abandoned European Jewry and left them trapped to be killed, worked to death, and left for dead. Why didn't American Jews and leaders like Weiss understand and, and comprehend the, the evil and terror of Hitler and the Nazis? They understood it, but some understood it too late. And more importantly, some like Rabbi Wise were conflicted. On the one hand, Wise, Wise knew, he recognized that there were opportunities to rescue Jews and that Roosevelt and the State Department were deliberately um, ignoring and sometimes even obstructing those opportunities. He knew it. But at the same time, um, he was, as we mentioned, concerned about the possibility that Jewish protests would cause anti-Semitism. He was also personally loyal to FDR. And in the book, The Jews Should Keep Quiet, I discuss another factor. Um, Wise turned 70 during this period. Um, the, 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 for, for, that, for that period, that was elderly. Um, he was in poor health. He was not really the man, he was not really the right man at the right time. He was not really able to juggle all of his different organizational leadership positions. Um, he was he was not, he didn't have the energy, much less the political will or the personal courage um, to rise to the occasion. So the proper thing would have been for him to really step aside and allow uh, younger Jewish and Zionist leaders to, uh, to take over the helm. Uh, but he resisted. And this is something we find among um, leaders of Jewish organizations, even in our own time, and, and, and beyond the Jewish community, where people in power are often very reluctant to relinquish um, the financial and other perks of uh, holding leadership positions. And so groups like the Bergson Group, who I've mentioned, had to operate outside the realm of the organized Jewish community. Uh, the Bergson people placed more than 200 full-page newspaper ads in major papers around the country during the, the 1940s. Um, they did it without a penny of support from the Jewish federations or any other established uh, Jewish philanthropies. They organized that march of rabbis to the White House and other protests, and they did it on a bare-bones budget because the leaders of the Bergson Group um, were simply dedicated to addressing the emergency. They didn't have established positions in the Jewish community. They weren't professionals. 
one Jewish community professional. And after the war, remarkably, the Berkshire Group did something which is almost unheard of in American Jewish history. They voluntarily, voluntarily dissolved their organization. Um, and they, some of them went back to uh, Palestine, which was then becoming Israel. Several of them, in fact, were elected to, to the first Knesset, the Israeli parliament. Um, and they were forgotten um, for many years by the people who wrote the history books. And that has changed, um, fortunately, um, in more recent times. But there's an important lesson um, for our time, I think, in the story of the Bergson Group and the story of Rabbi Wise's relationship with President Roosevelt. And that is that it's very important always for those in, in positions of Jewish communal responsibility to be on guard against being co-opted, um, to be careful not to let their personal interests get in the way of their policy decisions, and to listen to the voices of the, the dissidents and the outsiders and, and the, the, the less wealthy and the less well-connected, because sometimes they have creative and valuable ideas that could be helpful to Jewish interests. Dr. Raphael Medoff, thank you very, very much for spending time with us today. This is a this is an important book. The Jews should keep quiet. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. Uh, one more time, uh, Raphael, uh, can you tell us how people can support the Wyman Institute? Our website is wymaninstitute.org, W-Y-M-A-N institute.org. And please, please uh, feel free to send me any questions. Um, about some of the historical issues that we've discussed. And on the website, you'll see um, how to uh, support the organization and, um, and a lot of our other educational and historical materials that you'll find of interest. The Jews should keep quiet, not anymore, according to Bruce Ash. Um, we'll be right back after uh, a few messages. You're listening to Inside Track. We'll be right back. I'm proud to welcome my good friends at Tucson Iron and Metal Retail to Inside Track as an advertiser. Jamie Kipper and her staff are conservation experts. They sell round and square steel tubing, metal plate and roofing materials, as well as new and used steel, aluminum, and stainless steel to ranchers, artists, interior designers, roofers, and do-it-yourselfers, just like all of the listeners here. Tucson Iron and Metal Retail is open Monday through Fridays, 8 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. and Saturdays, 8 a.m. to noon. Tucson Iron and Steel Retail, 701 East 36th Street. Call 520-209-1576 or go to tucsonironretail.com. And when you do call, mention this ad and receive an additional 10% discount on their already great prices. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up with science. You mean you don't use a shoe? No, we use the latest in technology and innovation to eliminate bugs, termites, weeds, and more. No spray cans and lighters? None of that. Only solutions that target insect biology, using chemistry to help protect the environment, people, and their pets. Huh. Essential Pest Control leaves bugs belly up. Call 886-3029 or visit EssentialPest.com. This is Ed Wilkinson of Wilkinson Wealth Management reminding you that every good and excellent thing stands moment by moment on the razor's edge of danger and must be fought for, including getting out of debt, building your wealth, and protecting your God-given right. We manage money for gun owners. Let us help you retire comfortably and remain comfortably retired. Call me at 777-1911 or wilkinsonwealthmgmt.com. Welcome back to Inside Track. Our guest for the next few minutes is friend of the show, community volunteer and education activist running for the Amphitheater School Board, Mona Gibson. Welcome, Mona. Hey, Bruce. Thank you. How are Hello, you? Hello, Mona. Hi. Can you hear me? I can hear you now, kiddo. How are you? Okay. Okay, good. I'm great. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you for the opportunity to, to, to talk with you and your audience. I appreciate it. Sure. Just a few words about Mona's background in her own words. She says, I was a public servant for 20 years managing projects, contracts, and people. Understanding government budgets and governance is extremely necessary for a school board member. I was president of Tucson's largest reform synagogue, spending my time listening to my congregants and serving with integrity. 
every voice must be heard and decisions must be made transparently. And uh, friends, from the website Daily Citizen, it has become clear to the Mama Bear movement that many schools across America, both public and private, were promoting racist curriculum in the name of racial reconciliation, teaching sexually explicit and abusive material in the name of sexual tolerance, and willfully jeopardizing the, sef- the safety of children at, s- at school in the pursuit of affirming the transgender movement. Mona, you are a part of the Mama Bears running for school boards across America. Um, uh, no doubt you know that 20 of the 25 school board elections in last uh, last week's uh, Florida primary uh, resulted in the old guard leftists being removed by so-called Mama Bears who sought to replace them. Uh, does that give you hope that you and Jeff Uch will be successful in your election to change the tide in the Amphi District? Yes, Bruce. I definitely have hope uh, that Jeff and I can replace the folks who are running. I'm retired, so I can ha- represent all the mama bears and the papa bears out there because I have the time and the energy to make sure that they are represented. I've talked to so many of them, and they're so upset with what's going on. There are currently two of the five seats that are open from the board, and the two who are running for re-election are the most left of the progressive movement. Uh, I do believe that Jeff and I will um, win our election, and uh, we will make a difference once we get on that board, for sure. One of them is Matt Kopech, who has quite a reputation in leftist circles uh, here in Tucson. Who's the other Amphi school board member that's up for re-election? Susan Zebrat. So the a little two bit of, of history are, on her? Um, I don't, other than um, I, she is a registered Democrat, and she uh, often votes with Matt, um, as most of them do. Uh, so she has never come out and said anything, uh, uh, you know, in reaction to what he says, and it's a go-along, get-along. So they are the furthest left of those two, of the group. Leftist websites refer to candidates such as yourself as conspiratorial and unhinged. They say that CRT is not taught in schools. Drag queen contest stories are made up, and that schools are either not try- that and that schools are not trying to social engineer students. But the results of the students who graduated from high school have been in many uh, district uh, districts radicalized and preyed upon by teachers more interested in indoctrinating than educating. Now, if I is likely complicit in some of these areas, the board says, for example, uh, according to our conversations, Mona, that they have no CRT mm-hmm. curriculum. Uh, but the superintendent also says that he leaves pedagogy to the teachers of the classroom. Isn't this part of the problem? Yes. So first, let me just address that being called unhinged is not too bad. I've been called a lot worse. So being unhinged is, is not too much of a problem. Um, we need education, not indoctrination. And the board has, um, it says on their website that they support a, a curriculum that does not have CRT. And the superintendent at one of the meetings this month has explicitly said, we do not teach CRT. Critical race theory is not in our schools. But Again, you are absolutely correct. It's not um, up to um, a class that says this is CRT class. It's up to the pedagogy, to the pedagogy, however you want to pronounce that, um, you know, when they say that we follow the Arizona Department of Education curriculum, well, if you go onto the website for the Arizona Department of Education and look at some of the curriculum, you will see things such as the elements of critical um, critical race theory such as social emotional learning or diversity, equity, and inclusion. There is a way to not say I'm teaching critical race theory, but to take the elements of making people, you know, to uh, change people by class, make the students who are of color feel that they are not as worthy as the people who are white, that they're being oppressed, or that the white um, children are the oppressors and they are, you know, have, they have to have guilt and feel guilty about the ethnocentric or the European centric curriculum that has been taught up until this point. 
And that's where the pedagogy comes in, pedagogy comes in, because what they're doing is they take those beliefs and those elements and put it into every single part of their education, whether it's a math class, an English class, or anything that they're teaching, they they frame the world through this eye, through the eyes of CRT. And that's coming so, straight from the curriculum from the Department of Education. And that's why we need to get it started to get it changed. So clearly, this lack of uh, oversight of what actually is happening and being taught and how it's being taught in the classroom by the MFI uh, superintendent as well as the board uh, is critical um, to solving the problem uh, about CRT and, and other uh, problems like this. How can you address, you and Jeff address, what teachers do with their curriculum? It comes down to leadership. The school board is responsible for oversight of the superintendent, as well as they have a say in every um, personnel action. So all of the hires for the principals uh, go to the board and do you have a say in it? If, you know, are you going to approve it or not? You are given the information from the superintendent saying, you know, I have a thumbs up or a thumbs down for this person. But as a board member, you have, you can have a say in the principal. And it's up to the principals in each one of those schools who has a leadership to ensure that the CRT um, and all the related information is not being taught there because it's the principal who uh, is, has a day-to-day supervision of each of the teachers. And a lot of the, uh, you know, the information is coming from our, um, the university, our colleges, Department of Education. It, it starts there. So these new teachers who are coming out are being taught to see the world through the uh, views and eyes of CRT. And, and certainly um, right, so it's important right the... to make those changes. Yeah, and certainly right now, Mona, the board is uh, lacks diversity, and they're all a bunch of one-note Johnnies and Susies. And uh, if you and Jeff are there, uh, you're going to likely wake up parents uh, to these problems as well. Um, earlier this week, the Uvalde, Texas School District uh, board fired their security chief for inaction that led to the extreme carnage in the Ross Elementary School there in late May. Parents there could not have imagined the terror which befell their students and teachers in advance of the sh- in advance of the shooting. How safe are MFI schools and students at this time? So school safety is utmost importance. And at the last meeting, Superintendent Jagers uh, discussed a report that he received from a security third-party group who said that uh, the Amphi schools uh, were very safe, and he had all positive things to say. Um, you know, it, it, but it's an ongoing effort. There's always going to be training. There's always going to be a constant vigilance to make sure that what you learned, you know, in the beginning of the year is held throughout the year. Uh, we also have SROs and nearly all um, uh, security resource officers and nearly safety resource officers, sorry, in each of the, almost all of the schools uh, because they have contracts with the Oral Valley um, Police Department as well as the Pima County Sheriff's Department. So to have that presence in the majority of the schools is so important. Um, you know, not to yield to the people say, oh, well, I don't like to have, you know, that representation, a police officer, because it brings up bad ideas. It's like, no, to have the officer on site is so important because they build up a relationship and the students see that, you know, it's not us against them, that these officers are on our side and want to keep us safe from the people outside. And it's very important to have the SROs um, on site and hopefully we'll have them in all schools. I believe Uh, Superintendent Jager said that there was an issue with the Tucson Police Department um, in getting officers. And uh, I know that he's working on that because he said so. So, you know, I'm hoping that we'll have SROs in all the schools. Um, But I, I think that the Amphi schools are safe. But again, it goes back to my original thought that it's a matter of constant vigilance you can't have become so com, um, complacent that he's like, oh, well, what if I, you know, keep the back door open? I have to open it every five seconds. So I'll just leave it open. And it's like, no, that's what happened in Uvalde. They just opened it, left it open um, because it was a day that everybody was going in and out. 
And I can see where the complacency comes in and you have to just guard against that. And that comes through constant training. And hopefully um, that's something that they're working on. I haven't seen the report, but I would like to, uh, I've asked for it to be posted or at least the majority of the information to be posted to the AMFI website. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to see that soon. Mona, tell our listeners how to help you buy signs and put up signs and help you in this election. You know, you betcha. So the signs are the most expensive part of it. I never realized how expensive those signs that you see all over in every street corner. Um, we're doing a focused uh, putting up signs, planting the signs around each of the schools in all the, all the immediate areas. But you can donate online to um, myself or Mona for, that's F-O-R-AMFI.com. And you can um, donate also for Jeff, which is Jeff4AMFI. He uses the number four. Um, you can also message me at my website, and which is Mona at Mona4AMFI, and contact me, and I'd be happy to bring you some signs or figure out a place where you want some signs. I'm also going to a bunch of um, legislative district meetings. I'm out and about a lot, so I'd be more than happy to bring uh, our signs, both Jeff and mine. Cause we've been putting them up next to each other so that we can, you know, uh, plaster the all of Amphi school districts with our signs. Mona for Amphi.com. That's uh, four is spelled out or call her at uh, uh, 447-6166 to help her. Thanks very much for catching up, Mona. Uh, let's uh, get back um, uh, and, and uh, chat again soon. Thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you so All much. Right. I appreciate the All time. Right. Thanks. All right. Insiders, let's get back to some important local news for the remaining time we have together this afternoon. Uh, that should mean something to all of us. All Tucsonans, including myself, my friend Christy Simone, who controls this microphone weekdays on Wake Up Tucson, were profoundly shaken this week when a constable performing her duties was gunned down in the line of duty serving a writ. Constable Deborah Martinez uh, Barabay uh, served our country for 16 years, never got so much as a scratch. She assumed the duties of constable a few months back when Kristen Randall resigned. After 9-11, Deborah decided she could not just stand by when the country was being endangered. Uh, She had um, uh, developed extensive experience after leaving the service, uh, helping veterans and working on developing veterans programs uh, for her fellow vets, really quite a great citizen and patriot. Uh, Deborah threw herself into her new job as constable with the same sort of interest she did as an intelligence specialist in the Army. Uh, Deborah said she wanted to show empathy in a job we now know can be extremely dangerous and violent. Um, The company I helped run uh, and have for many years was in the multifamily rental business for many, many years. And while over 98.5% of all residents and apartments pay rent timely and follow the rules of the community they reside, evictions are a last resort remedy by property owners to protect their property and the people who live there peacefully. Constables sometimes walk into the same sort of powder kegs we saw earlier this week at the Linden Commons Apartments, a sort of C-minus place to live uh, on north, uh, in the north central part of Tucson, sometimes referred to as Pliskin Acres by my friend Chris. Uh, the shooter, who shall go nameless here because of his awful crime, killing three humans and then cowardly taking his own life, had threatened other neighbors and justice court judge uh, re, uh, agreed to take action on an expedited writ of restitution to remove him from the property. He had demonstrated his dangerous behavior already. The first question which should be asked in the aftermath of this of this triple killing uh, is how did the constable, Constable Martinez Garibay, come to serve the writ without other law enforcement support, knowing the shooter had previously used a firearm to threaten his neighbor? The county has been playing political games with the constable service for some time, and there have been concerns for the safety of constables previously, as well as how they perform their duties with some inconsistencies being noted by the county supervisors. Former Pima Sheriff Mark Napier noted significant improvement in protocols being followed by the service due to some of the work he and others had done. 
If so, how did Constable Martinez end up losing her life to a dangerous known firearms abuser? Constables do carry a weapon if they are certified by the state to do so, but we do not know if Deborah had a firearm when she encountered the shooter. Having extensive experience with evictions for nearly 50 years myself at our multifamily rental business, there have been plenty of times constable serving writs needed law enforcement backup. The county soups wanted to eliminate constables before this event, and they will use this killing as an example of why they, uh, um, uh, they and the former county uh, administrator Huckleberry are right to eliminate these officers of the court, likely ceding the duties to the sheriff's office. Despite this awful event, there is a very good reason to reject their plan. First, the lives which were taken this week might not have occurred had there been proper coordination with the constable's office and the sheriff's office to provide backup. Second, sheriffs already have their hands filled with law enforcement duties, which leave them understaffed and Pima citizens endangered. It would only be worse if they also had to deliver thousands of such writs and notices uh, to trial, which took away from their primary goals of protecting the public. Ms. Martinez Garibay tried to show empathy in her job, which is valuable as a component in keeping peace officers away from what can be a distressing time for families evicted for failure to pay rent. There is a time for humanity in this sort of work, and sheriffs wearing body armor, a gun, and tasers sometimes can elevate tension during an eviction, which represents the vast majority of constable interactions. This week was a dark one for Tucson and Pima County with so many deaths attributed to violence. We mourn the needless loss of Constable Deborah Martinez Garibay, a treasure in our community. We should also hold the sheriff and the county supervisors to properly and impartially investigate what went wrong without politics so that court service will be safer in the future and also allow constables to serve in the courts safety uh, in safety while protecting humanity of people at stressful times by a non-police person. Let's hope they can at least honor all of the lives lost this week by doing that responsibly. Lastly, in the remaining seconds before I close, a public expression of sympathy and hope to our broadcast friend and partner, John C. Scott, who lost his daughter, Leslie, just recently. John loved Leslie, bragged on her for many years, and as well as his granddaughter, John has suffered much uh, since his Amy passed. I hope all of you insiders will say a prayer for our friend John C. Scott and his family. Insiders, as we close this, as we uh, close up another inside track, Evan, I hope you enjoyed the show today with author Raphael Medoff and Amphi School Board uh, member. Uh, or candidate, Mona Gibson. Join us next week. We already have a great show planned for you. As you know, our show is podcast on both the KVOI website and on Apple Podcasts. Close to 130 Inside Track episodes are available at Apple Podcasts. So until next week, uh, for Inside Track and for Ab Wilkinson, uh, this is Bruce Ash and producer Mr. ESQ. Wishing all of you a very pleasant good afternoon, and we'll see you again in 167 hours.